Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth podcast. You know why I like these podcasts is because I can do them really quickly. Number one, there's always more to talk about than we could possibly talk about. And two, I can do this in one take and have it online 15 minutes later and done. Blog post, ready to go, stacked up, ready to release on all of you unsuspecting people. Who are you people? Who's this podcast for? Well, if you've ever put on a pair of jean shorts and looked in the mirror and said, God, I look like the cat's ass, then this is for you. And maybe you went to a barbershop and you said, keep it business on top and vacation in the back. If you've ever done that, then this podcast is for you. Uh, I do believe my iPad battery is no longer holding a charge, or it's not holding a charge nearly as long as it should. But any of you who know me in my trials and tribulations with all things technological, you are not surprised, and neither am I. So we're going to start out this week. We've got a lot of stuff. We've got a lot of photography stuff. We've got some politics stuff that I think is really interesting uh, because I've been doing some studying for actually for quite a while. And uh, I got some pr uh, predictions for you. Also got some shopping talk here in Santa Fe. I tried something. I wasn't sure if it was the right thing to do or not the right thing to do. I've got a story about Alaska, photographic story that I want to end with. And uh I want to talk about knowledge in general. So my wife may be parading through here at some point if you hear the noise. Um, she's like a Cat 4 hurricane all the time. Okay, before we get started here, let's talk about Hero. This hero this week might have been a hero in a prior episode. I don't know. I should keep a list of heroes, but I don't because I'm too busy. I'm doing other things. But the hero this week is no longer with us. He was killed, I want to say, in 2013 in Australia about 500 kilometers from the end of a 3,500-kilometer bicycle ride. Uh, his name is Mike Hall. And if you go on Netflix, not Netflix, I'm sorry, Amazon Prime, and you look up a film called Inspired to Ride, which was directed by a guy named Mike Dion, who's a uh, director up in Colorado, who also did a film called Ride the Divide, which is about the Tour Divide mountain bike race. I love it. These are not, like, not super high-production value films, but they're great films because you immediately engage with the people that they're covering. And Inspired to Ride is about the Transamerica race, bicycle race, which is an unsupported bike race from Astoria, Oregon to Virginia. It's 4,000 miles or some just insane amount of riding. And these guys do it. He wanted in, Mike Hall wanted in, I think, 15 days and something. Think about that. Like, I've slept for 15 days before, and uh, he rode his bike across the country. But he was killed. Uh, in Australia in another race, uh, which is just horrifying. You know, it happens, a lot of cyclists are killed every year, and it's just so bothersome to me because most of the time, not a whole heck of a lot happens to the drivers of the cars, and there's so many distracted drivers now. So anyway, look him up. He was such a, I never met him. He was such a nice, humble, quiet uh, guy from Wales who just got on his bike and never stopped riding. Okay, two things before we get to the first point. And one is I've been talking about on my written side of my blog that um, I bought a spin, a trainer, bicycle trainer. Now, we had a full-on blizzard for the first five hours of the day here. We had 30-mile-an-hour winds all night, and it, I got up, and it just looked like a—it was like a snow globe outside. There was huge wind gusts and snow blowing off the roof, and, you know, we had, it was not a, a day—I I don't think anybody on a bicycle was— was on a bike anywhere near this town today. That would be my guess. Um, and so I've been getting on the spin bike an hour a day, 
and I listened to something called Radio Ambulante, which is a Latin American radio network. They broadcast from pretty much every major city in Latin America, but they're also part of NPR, so you can find them through NPR. Again, it's called Radio Ambulante, and they do Spanish language reporting. So my Spanish sucks for the most part. If you're looking for the technical description of my capability, it would be sucks. So just know that. At one point in my life, back in the day, I was able to speak Spanish fairly well, back around the mid-90s. But um, I don't have a lot of friends that, I mean, I'm American. Hardly anybody here speaks a second language, and most of my friends have a handful smattering of Spanish, but very, very few of them are fluent. And so I've been listening to Radio Ambulante. Now, they released, Radio Ambulante released an app called Lupa, L-U-P-A, which is pretty interesting. Um, and it's it's worth looking at, especially if you want to learn Spanish. So what they do is they incorporate the language app with Radio Ambulante. So when you're looking at your phone and you're watching, you're listening to this, you can you can see the, the copy, and you can look at it in English or Spanish, and you're listening to it in Spanish, but you can see it in English or see it in Spanish. You can speed it up or slow it down. So the guy's like, hmm, hola, kind of thing, or super fast. But you can also do this thing where it hides certain words. And I have to say, it's different from anything I've seen. I use Duolingo as well, and that's fine. If you don't know any Spanish vocabulary, like Duolingo is a great place to start. But Lupa is for people who want to learn how to speak Spanish, and it's street Spanish kind of thing from all different streets. So it's definitely worth looking at. Lupa.app is where you can find it. And um, I'm using the trial version. There's, it's, it's a pay thing. It's like 10 bucks a month or 20 bucks a month. I don't remember what the dif differentiation is. But 10 bucks a month to learn a language is absolutely nothing. I mean, if you've ever invested in a language school, you'll know how ridiculously inexpensive that is. So it could be worth it. Okay, the last point before we get to the points is there are such things, such thing as ugly babies, right? I, I heard someone the other day say, oh, there's no such thing as an ugly baby. I beg to differ. I had a friend who had a baby that was terrifying. It was so ugly. And of course, the parents don't think so. The parents immediately, your brain, that section of your brain that goes, oh my God, my baby is hideous. It, it turns off permanently, forever, because it's your baby. But for the rest of us, the terror never goes away. And he would unveil this baby. And every time he unveiled the baby, regardless of where we were, or what we were doing, or who was around, you could see the look of terror on people's faces, of just, oh, that's, the, that's the scariest looking baby I've ever seen. So just know they're out there, okay? Just get, you know, get over it, because um, not everybody's going to make a peach, right? Okay, let's get started with our points. We have like 11 or 12. I lied, 15, although I may not do all of these. Um, so a lot of these came up in the last day, which I think are pretty interesting. Num point number one is I want to talk about something that I describe as the urban abstract landscape. Okay, that's a style of photograph. Think about that. Urban abstract landscape. Now, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is I keep getting sent from people films of hipsters on YouTube shooting film and they're shooting a style of photograph. Typically, it falls into two categories. Street photography, 
where they're jumping out in front of people who have no idea what's coming, which I have a total problem with. I think once Bruce Gilden did that and got away with it, everyone else should have found something else to do. I think that's a terrible way to make pictures. And I think it if you're if you're on the receiving end of a, of a hipster who jumps out with a camera, it doesn't feel good. And I'm surprised that these guys have not gotten literally beaten to a pulp yet. I can't imagine. I mean, you try that here and you're going to get you're going to get pummeled. So urban abstract landscape. Now, the reason I bring this up is way back in the day, early on, Blurb used to have hold this contest. It was an international book contest that was the single best contest I've ever seen in the book world with the single best lineup of judges of any contest I've ever seen from anyone, right? Blurb sp- spent a fortune. They'd get about somewhere between three and 4,000 entries. You did not have to enter a Blurb book. There were winning books that were not Blurb books. That rubbed tons of people the wrong way. People who wanted to hate Blurb, you know, the hater groups are always out there. You know, we could have given away Fabergé eggs and people would have hated, hated us for doing it. So there were, you know, the subset of people were like, oh, you know, you're just trying to get us to make Blurb books or whatever. We were like, doesn't matter. Send whatever you want. And I remember uh, a couple of years there was not a winning uh, Blurb book. So anyway, this contest was fantastic. I was a preliminary judge. I was the guy who just w- took his lumps before we brought in like the, the big wigs. And the big wigs that we brought in was the best lineup of judges, like I said, I've ever seen. So this was, you know, way back. This was 2007-ish, I guess, when we started it. I think they ran it for four years. So I'm preliminary judge, and I'm hanging out with the head judge, and we're going through all 4,000 books. Let's just say 3,000. We're going through all 3,000 books. Now think about that. We're looking in digital form at 3,000 books at once. Boom, 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 right? So you start to see trends. And all of a sudden, we start to see, and I'm, let, me, let me back up a little bit. I'm not the only preliminary judge. There's probably four other people in the room, all incredibly skilled book-related people. Some are designers, some are, are PhD-level instructors, myself, and then the head judge. So I'm like the weak, weak link. So I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, we start to see a kind of book that has a, a, a style of image that we, the, the title that we sort of landed on was Urban Abstract Landscape. Now, the urban abstract landscape is void of people. It's shot from a public place, and it's detached, right? Now, in the 60s and 70s, there were people who did this kind of work really well, right? They became famous for this kind of work. Most of them ended up in the art photography world, not in the journalism world or anything like that. So I see this style of work, and immediately I peg why we're seeing these books. Now, we start to see one book, two book, three, four, 10, 20, 30, and the judges are getting pissed. They're like, why are we seeing so many of these of this style? Like, what is going on? And I kind of innocently raised my hand, and I said, I know exactly why. Now, again, I'm the weak weak link in this hierarchy of people, right? So no one's, no one's asking for my opinion, but I'm like, I'm going to give it anyway. The reason was the internet. The reason was that young photographers no longer wanted to put in the time that the older photographers would have put in to become famous or be relevant. They wanted instant relevance. How do you do that? Well, you've got to go out and produce a body of work. Well, how do you produce a body of work if you have to get model releases? How do you produce it if you have to get location releases? How do you, how do, you do it if you have to get architectural releases? How do you do a body of work quickly if you have to engage with people that you don't know? 
So what they did is they just found a way of working that eliminated everything. You could go out in a weekend and shoot an entire body of work and turn it into book form. And guess what? You could win stuff. I saw these books win contests. I saw them win photography contests. I saw them win book contests. I saw them win a contest at a festival. You know, it's weird, like shrubbery in the suburbs. It's like half a car lines in a parking lot and half an old building with like an overpass. You've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of these. Um, and it's taken over, now it's taken over the hipster film world, right? They've finally discovered the urban abstract landscape and the fact that you don't ever have to engage with anyone to do this. You go out and in two days, you can shoot an entire body of work. You can Instagram the entire time. You can YouTube the entire time and you never have to get involved. It's the perfect style of photography for the online hipster photography world. And so if you don't know about this, it's actually an interesting genre to go back and study back in the 60s and 70s. And I'm going to let you figure out who the, who the superstars are that did this kind of work in the 60s and 70s, because there's two that are jumping out at me uh, off the top of my head that are, that I don't think any of these hipsters know who these people are, but they're the ones that set the table for this whole genre. Okay, moving on. I want to talk about f amateur photography books, right? So professionals make books for a variety of different reasons. It's a, for a professional to get a traditionally published photo book is still one of the most important things you can do as a professional photographer. That is a calling card of acceptance, a calling card of relevance, and a calling card that you are a legitimate photographer if you can get a traditionally published book. Now, I don't mean paying a photographer, uh, a publisher to do your work. The, the number one de book deal I see and hear about in photography today, and a lot of people are for some reason still surprised by this, the number one book deal I see is photographer paying the publisher to do a book. Let me repeat that. Photographer, and this is pros, pro photographers, actual real pro photographers, pro photographers paying publisher to do the book upfront typically between twenty dollars and $50,000. 99.9% .9 of the time, they never see that money back. They never make a penny. Oftentimes, they lose even more money. Uh, often, Sometimes the books are destroyed if they're remaindered for tax purposes. Oftentimes, they don't get the book that they want because they don't get to work with the designer they want. It's on a long time. You know, There's a lot of pitfalls. Occasionally, I see this work really well, but the average deal is photographer paying publisher. Now, often the publisher will tell the photographer not to tell anyone that this is what's happening because they don't want to be known as what's called a pay-for-play publisher, which is, hey, we want to keep our offices going. We want to keep our presses going. So yeah, if you're a sucker and you got 30 or 40 grand and we can get it from you, we'll do a book with you. But we may not market it for you. We may not advertise it for you. We may not distribute it for you, but that's what it is. Now, occasionally you see legit, wonderful incredible relationships where photographer makes money, gets the book they want, gets marketing, gets distribution, does a show, gets a, gets everything and it works and it's but that's probably 2 1 to 2% of the book deals that I hear about. The last group of photographers I ran into was at a party here in Santa Fe. There were three of them. Uh, I walked into the room and someone introduced me and they all kind of looked at me with these nervous looks and they were all doing book deals at the current time. All three had paid publishers. One was very upfront and said, I paid like 40000 and I know I'm never going to get it back. And the other two said, we don't really know how much we paid. And I said, well, what about marketing distribution? They said, we really have no idea. The publisher hasn't told us. So this is very common. It's a minefield out there. 
but amateur photo books are a whole different category. And there's a lot of really good reasons to make an amateur photo book. You know, I make them all the time. I wouldn't call myself a professional book bookmaker. I've I've had I've been approached three times by traditional publishers, and I've turned down all three opportunities. Believe it or not, um, that's very rare. But they were terrible deals. Two were terrible deals, and one was just a book I did not want to make. It was a subject matter I did not want to do a book on. So I was like, I'm not doing that. And I'm getting really good at saying no to things because. I'm getting older, and if I'm 51, and I'm just now starting to make good decisions in my life. So anyway, but here's the thing. I see a lot of amateur photographers obsessing over their books. I mean obsessing, and they obsess over things like technical details. And a lot of these books are like landscape books, right? They're, you're a landscape photographer, or you do travel pictures, or you do street photography. Here's here's my my two cents on this. I don't ever want to discourage you from making a book. I think making a book, no matter how good or bad it is, forces you to jump through hoops that you would not do if you didn't make the book. It forces you to choose, what are you going to put on the cover? What's your best image? Or what's the image that's most relevant that's going to sell the story in the project? Just making that decision is a really good thing. What's your sequence? What's your typography? What are you going to write? Are you going to do captions? Are you not going to do captions? Are you going to get somebody to write it forward? All these different things that even if you never released the book, at least you did it. But what I see, especially in the landscape and travel photography world, are these, I'll call them geeks. Maybe it's you. I'll call you a geek. Obsessing over things that, make, that don't make a difference. And frankly, here's my point. The world does not need another landscape photography book. It really doesn't. At least, sorry, I'm moving my chair here. My slipper fell off. We don't need another landscape book, at least in the traditional sense. Now, again, if you're going to make a landscape book for yourself, that's fantastic. You should, 100%, and make the biggest one you can possibly make if that's what you want. But a landscape book that you're putting out in the world to sell, I think the only people who will buy that are other photographers that are in your circle who are just as geeky as you are. Now, here's the thing. You can do an atypical landscape book and make something really interesting. Make something really interesting. A combination of personal thoughts, reflections, behind the scenes, notes, scans, graphics. Because here's the thing. I'm interested in you. I'm not interested in your landscape photography. It doesn't really, I've seen too much, right? It's just, I've been in this for a long time. I've seen too many landscape books. We call them rock and twig books, not we. Blurb, I don't mean blurb calls them that. It called me and my uh, sort of uh, alumni from back in the Kodak days. We always, at Kodak, we called them rock and twig books. We don't need another one. So I see people obsessing over this stuff and I'm like, don't do it. Just don't do it. Do it for yourself, but don't do it for the public because it's going to be a really, hard sell. And ultimately you're looking at a book of landscape photographs. That's my, and I'm not bagging on landscape photographs. I suck at landscape. I've never made a landscape photograph that I looked at and said, wow, that's really good. I look at it and go, "Mm, doesn't feel like what it did. Doesn't look like what it felt like to stand there. Okay. Point number four. I looked, I saw something online today that stopped me in my tracks. I literally laughed out loud and I thought this is the best thing I've seen this week. We are only at Monday. So it was a YouTube film by some kid, and it was titled, Learn 80% of Photography in 10 Minutes. 
Now, now anyone out there who's a photographer is probably laughing right now. Um, but for those of you who aren't, let me just tell you, that's a really funny thing. Learn 80% of photography in 10 minutes. Okay, so here's my take on that. The only thing that matters in photography, the only thing is the other 20%. And I would even say the other 10%. The 80 to 90%, which is what this guy's teaching and selling, makes no difference whatsoever. It's irrelevant. It's the technical side of photography. So I went to photojournalism school and people were like, oh, you went to photojournalism school. You must have learned a lot about, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're listing like cameras and, and uh, apertures and, you know, the Schleimflut method and darkroom techniques. Well, we, darkroom, yes. That was something we spent years on. And I never got good in the darkroom. A lot of people I, I, I went to school with were way worse than me. And some people really had a, had a knack for darkroom printing. But the 80% of photography that these YouTube guys are teaching, the tech side, we spent, in a four-year time frame, we spent less than two weeks on all of it, okay? Because the only thing that matters is the 20 to 10%, which is, who are you? What do you know? What, what's your skill level? How long have you done this? How have you refined your technique? And all of the periphery things that go into being a good photography and a photographer, and none of that has anything to do with the tech technical aspects. So this whole YouTube thing of like circumventing the study of photography is just that you're circumventing, and it's like putting a bandaid on a on a uh, sucking chest wound. You know, it's just not something that's going to work in the long run. And what happens is you end up making every, your pictures look like everything else you've already seen. And again, we've I've harped on this a million times over. 99% of what you see on, on online in photography is content, not photography. When you see photography, you'll know it because you'll, you'll find yourself holding your breath or being insanely jealous or being confused. And then you know that you're probably in the vicinity of legitimate photography. Okay, point number five is, is, a, is my 50-50 point. Uh, since I started making these little YouTube films, I've mentioned this before, it's just been sort of a flood of emails, messages, um, and communication from people all over the world, which is really interesting. I've met some, just this past week, met a couple of people who are incredibly smart. They don't work as photographers. They work at total other lives outside, but they are really good photographers, writers, designers, etc. cetera. Uh, I'm not going to name them by name because I, I, I didn't ask them if I could, but one person in particular is from South America, or Central America, actually. Um, you know, sent me this little sample of a magazine, and I looked at it, and I was like, it's way better than anything I've ever done. And he has a, his vocation is totally outside of photography. So, but people have been asking about sort of how do I view success, or why do I do pictures, or why do I do these stories? And I, it just, it just came to me very, very clearly and it's a 50-50 thing. I do photography 50% out of anguish and 50% out of success. So let's say that I go to Paraguay and I do, and I have a story idea to do in Paraguay. Let's say that I'm going to do a documentary on Miss Paraguay, who's the international beauty pageant contestant. And let's say that she is an MMA fighter on the side and she also patrols the streets at night, stopping crime. And I'm like, oh, this is great. It's a, it's a trifecta of her beauty pageant, and then the MMA, and then the street fighting at night, right? This is ideal. And I go down there, and I make, and I'm there for eight days with her. 
And she's like, don't leave, don't leave. You're amazing and such an incredible artist. And I'm like, no, 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 I've got to move on and, and spread my talent around the world. But let's say that I make these pictures and I know in my head that there's eight photographs in eight days that I'm like, that's my, my nucleus. Those are the ones. I, I got those eight. But let's say there's two I know, I know that I blew. I missed it. Like I either blew focus or I just didn't get the moment or I screwed up. I saw it coming and I wasn't fast enough. Those images, to me, they're on even par with what I came away with, the good stuff. So 50% anguish and 50% success is what's driving me to make pictures. And that's why I do projects. Because remember, I spend a lot of time working on projects and working on books. It's a small percentage of my overall time, but I could be, you know, I could be doing nothing. I could be watching TV or like, you know, streaming stuff all day long, but I don't. I'm like writing, scanning, shooting, planning, plotting all the time. And I don't show that stuff to anybody. I just do it because I love to do it. But that love is driven by, oh, hey, I did something good. And it's also driven by, you're an idiot. You blew it. And so that's why I do photography. Okay, point number six, let's talk a little bit about influencers. I was, I was, uh, Messaging with someone in the uh, in the great land of Germany earlier today, and the and the word influencer came up. Now, most of us have been around online enough in the last ten years to realize that that was a word that creeped into the vernacular. Let's just say ten years ago, influencer, and that's always now it's short for it's social media influencer. But that's that's where we're at now. We just we just label we just slap it on like a sticker. We peel the back off and just slap that influencer label on people who really have no business being anywhere near a sticker. So let me just give you a little rundown of my experience with influencers. 99.9999% of the time, every project that I have been involved in with a quote-unquote influencer has not ended well. Um, not even close. And in, fa in fact, when I came out of those... I just looked at the entire scenario and said, there was nothing good about this. So my experience goes like this. The influencers are basically, they're, they're throwing, uh, how, do I, how do I put this? They're casting a line. They're, they're casting a net every single day online. They're sniffing around. They're hunting for companies and people that they can, that can, they, they can milk, right? So they know that they have a following of people. So they go around to companies and businesses and they go, they reach out with these. And I got two or three of these last week. Hey, I've never made a book before, but you know, this is who I am and look at my Instagram feed. And you know, if I did a book, wow, it'd be so great for your company. And uh, you know, I'm amazing and look at my work. And you know, you look at their work and you're like, wow, this person has no training. There's nothing original here. And they're going from company to company to company to company. And they're just hoping for somebody to bite, right? I get it. That's how they've made their, they've, they've got a foothold and that's what they're doing. But my experience is their experience is never very good, and they're, they're like skipping a stone across a pond. They, they know a little bit about many things, but they're never really good at any one thing, and they're also not very loyal. And as soon as you, they are done with you, and they're milking your social following or they're milking you, your community, they will go right on to the next project. And in fact, if a, if a competitor of yours comes up, they'll go straight to them and not think twice. Um, I've even been involved in something where we've had um, an influencer just leave in the middle of an event. They just they were like hard to work with, not talented, defensive, angry. So I can't stand it when I see a campaign from a company and they're 
the big meeting of the minds and the plan is let's work with an influencer. And I'm like, gee, that's original. Why don't we go, why don't we sit in a production meeting? I'll take two phones and you take two phones and Billy takes two phones and we'll just scroll until our thumbs fall off and we'll just look for people with lots of followers and then we'll try to get their followers to be our followers. Oh, it's a great plan. You know, I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you've got medical and uh, a company car because that's a brilliant plan. So I'm not a big influencer fan. I'm a, I'm a fan of original people who are original thinkers who are willing to try something new. That's what I'm looking for. I'm, you know, you hear this term, so-and-so's a renaissance person. That's really interesting to me because when you meet these people, you know immediately. And 99.9% of them are not on, on social media. And if they are, it's like an afterthought. I'll give you an example. Last week, I was asked to vet someone. This happens about three or four times a week. I get an email saying, can you vet this person and see if they're valid or whatever? And normally within, all I have to do is read the email that came as an approach email from the person and I know whether or not they're valid. So I can vet them without ever having Googled them just by their email, believe it or not. It's pretty easy. Um, Spelling errors, um, false claims, uh, rushing to say how many many Instagram followers they have, all that stuff is just a turn off red flag and I'm like, nope, not going to happen. But this one person reached out and I looked and... um, and they are from Europe. And I looked at the email and I was like, this is really well written. And I looked at the website and I was like, wow, this is a beautiful website. And I looked at the social media and the numbers were tiny, 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 like probably fewer than I have. Right. And you know, my feelings about social, but then I looked at the content of the social and I saw a real person who was not lying, who was not phony, who was not like trying to be somebody they weren't. And in in addition, they had immediately morphed and shifted when the virus hit into something bigger than themselves. They were really trying to help other people in their in their same genre, their same, you know, system. And I immediately said, this is a person we're going to we're going to support. I could care less if they had zero Instagram followers. It would make no difference to me at all. Just the design of the website, the content of the work, the range of what they were putting out, you know, downloadable PDFs for free for people in their genre to help them in the time of the virus, beautifully designed. They had books for sale that they had already done on the site, beautifully designed. And I was like, this is a real person who's trying to do something real. F the social following. Who cares? This is a legitimate person. Like this person in five or 10 years is going to be famous if they want to be based on their actual work and who they are as a human being. Okay. That was point six. Point number seven is a really good one because I screwed up. Now, two podcasts ago, this is podcast 30, I think we're talking podcast 28, I was defending YouTube because I kept hearing, oh, YouTube just uses softcore porn to sell stuff and, you know, it's just girls in bikinis and it's always some like naked woman and it's, you know, all this stuff and that's just pandering and YouTube. And I was like, hey, 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 back off. It's YouTube and I'm here to save it. And so I went through and I found, I was like, look, there's only these things being sold on YouTube with softcore porn. And then I came back on podcast 29 and I was like, look, I was slightly off and I listed probably no more than another 30 or 40 genres that are being sold with softcore porn. 
which was really only like a total of 100 genres that were being sold by softcore porn, but I was wrong. I found a few more. And I just want to list them here because, again, now we're probably only talking about 115 or 120 genres that are being sold with softcore porn on YouTube. So I just want to list them. Bullet journaling, ball bearings, Costa Rica, accidents of all kinds, home defense, drones, living in a yurt, a tent, a house, a shack, or any other structure, motorcycling, camping, news, media in general, weather in general, cartoons, skydiving, scuba diving, platform diving, abalone diving, and free diving hammocks, kayaks, or any other piece of outdoor equipment, and yes, sailing hipsters using softcore porn to sell coronavirus adventures while asking for money. But that's it. There's no other genre on YouTube that is using softcore porn to sell. So just back off and give YouTube a break. Okay, point number eight, I need to curse the entire continent of Australia. Every single one of you are guilty and um, I got a problem. You know, I, lo I, I loved Australia until very recently. And, and recently I was reminded of something that comes from Australia that I was reintroduced to, and now it's basically ruined my life. I spend part of every day online price hunting for something called a Tim Tam. And for those of you Australians out there, you know what I'm talking about. It's a goddamn cookie, and it's the best cookie I've ever had in my life. Now, when I went through Western Australia with the Renyard brothers, who are awesome, by the way, great photographers and great people and talented and fun and risk-taking, I love these guys. They also happen to be twins. But um, we drove through, I don't know what it was, thousands of miles of Western Australia, and um, all we ate was meat and candy, basically, because that's their diet. And so I was, I was along for the ride, so I ate meat and candy. Um, and uh, I'm going to get to meat in a second because I've taken a right turn here. But they introduced me to the Tim Tam, which is an Australian cookie. And then about a month ago, my wife is, at, believe it or not, in Santa Fe, New Mexico at a, at a weird little grocery store and walks in and there's a ginormous display of Tim Tam. Now, she doesn't know anything about them. So she buys, and we don't eat a lot of food like that. She buys a pack of Tim Tams. And then we, you know, disinfect our entire bodies in the parking lot. We get in the van, we drive back here, and I'm, we disinfect the groceries. And I'm looking, and I look down, and there's a packet of Tim Tams. And I literally almost had a stroke. I got dizzy. I grabbed my left arm, and I, and I sort of almost augured over into the ground. And I was like, where did you get these? And she goes, oh, there's a whole bunch of them in there. I could have bought them one, a ton of them. And they were really inexpensive. And then she had one. And when the sobbing stopped and the therapy started, we realized that we needed to find a way to get Tim Tam as, as possible. So you know what? F you, Australia, for even making these things, um, because they are, they're not fair. That's what it is. Okay, point number nine. I want to jump to some politics here, and I've got two points about politics, one short and one long, with a meat story in the middle. So how can you not stick around for this? So I think, fast forward 2020, November elections, um, the virus has mysteriously disappeared, and everything is perfect with the world which I don't see happening. But I think, this is my personal opinion, and I really, really, all caps, really hope I'm wrong. I, just let me preface this again. I really hope I'm wrong. I think Trump is a lock to win in 2020. A lock. I don't think it's even going to be remotely close. And let me just go through this really quickly because my next point about him is long. Trump owns... So you, he, he's a train wreck, right? We know he's a train wreck. But he did a couple of things, 
I can't say well, but he's shrewd. I think shrewd is a word. And he knew like way back in 2016, he started this process. He bought the Justice Department. William Barr works for Donald Trump. We know that now. We've had 800 different examples, right, of, of him caving, doing really shifty, shady stuff. Trump owns the Justice Department. Think about that. So there's no checks and balance coming from the Justice Department. It's, it's done. It's, that's Trump, Inc. He also owns the Supreme Court. Think about that. And if, Ginsburg, if he gets another four years and Ginsburg goes, he's going to own it even more. He also owns the appellate court system. He's been appointing right-wing, underqualified wackos who are worship at the Church of Trump into this court system. And the virus is decimating the lower-income folks that the Democrats need to vote. Secondly, Trump and the Republicans, immediately when the virus hit, one of the first public statements they made was, we will not allow vote by mail. So they're going to gerrymander. They're going to make it incredibly difficult to vote. The lower income folks and middle, middle class Americans are going to get hit hardest by the virus. They're going to have a really hard time getting out to vote. And Trump owns the Senate. He owns the court system, the justice system, and he owns uh, William Barr. That is what you call a perfect storm. And I don't think, and oh, by the way, and I'm going to, before I start this next point about the, the Trump again, um, the Dems are a train wreck. Like, we have Joe Biden. That's it. So, um, anyway. Okay, I want to sneak a little point in here before we get to, to the Trump supporters, because I've done a nice long study of these folks over the past couple of years. And um, I've heard some really interesting feedback, and I find it fascinating who these people are. And um, I just want to share it with you. And maybe you, th maybe you think I'm wrong, which is totally fine, but um, I'd be curious what you think. Okay, I want to talk about puking for a second and meat. So I talked to you about being in Western Australia, finding Tim Tams, being with the Renyard brothers, and they ate meat all the time. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm eating meat. And so we had good meat, you know, we'd grill out in the middle of the outback and, and just hang out and blah, blah, blah. It was, it was incredible. It was one of my favorite places in the whole world. So I was at my mom's a while back and now I eat, I ate meat <laughs> up until very recently. And I'm at my mom's house and my mom eats meat all the time. She was a vegetarian for 15 years when I was a kid and now eats meat all the time. So I'm, I'm in her house and I'm hungry and she goes, well, there's a hamburger patty in the freezer. And I'm like, great. So I look in there and there's one hamburger patty, right? That should have been the red flag. I should have run. I should have just, you know, taken a vow of meat celibacy and, and gone away. But no, I'm like, oh, look, there's one meat patty left. So I cook this thing up. I put it in a bun. I eat it. And I'm like, woo, that was really good. And then about four hours later, I'm sitting there and I'm, and I'm starting to sweat. And I'm like, I'm inside. I'm not working out. I'm starting to sweat. I'm starting to get that feeling kind of like I've been poisoned. And about five minutes later, I realize what's about to happen to me. I realize that I now have food poisoning and not just a mild little dose of food poisoning. I've got the cat five uh, of food poisoning. So now you, you know, when that, when it hits, right, you just, you go into battle stations, you go from DEFCON 1 to 5 just instantly, and you're like, okay, I know I'm going to puke. It's just a matter of how long and how many times and how hard is this going to be. So I like, I go into defensive motion. I, I basically get down in, in position in front of the toilet, 
trying to get comfy. I'm trying to get the right angle. I'm thinking, all right, I got to, I got to, I'm, I'm a professional. I've done this before. I've puked from the, since the time I was a kid. I should be good at this. And here it comes. And man, uh, I puked. And I puked harder than I've ever puked in my life and longer than I've ever puked in my life. It was like the, um, it was like Ace Ventura, Jim Carrey, when he uh, ends up making out with the police chief, who he thinks is a woman, but it's a man, and it freaks him out. And then he has the toilet, the toilet plunger, and he sticks it on his face, and he's plunging his face. That's what was happening to me. I was emptying of 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 all life, almost. My soul flew out. If I what little soul I had left, which flew out, and I literally, I was sore. My abdomen, like I had done crunches for an hour. I, I was sore the next day. So long story short, I did not eat for five days. I did not eat a single piece of food for five days. All I had, because I was so sick that I remembered somebody saying, hey, a Coke is really good for settling your stomach. And my mom had the Mexican Coke, which is made with sugar and not high fructose corn syrup, in glass bottles. And they were the little tiny ones. So for five days, I had a total of five Cokes. I had one Coke a day. And by the way, at the end of five days, I was nowhere near ready to eat. And now I weigh about 160 pounds before puking. So after five days of no food and puking, I was like, I looked like I was training for a bodybuilding contest without the bodybuilding. I just looked like my skin was made of paper. And, uh, and anyway, I, the point of this is I really haven't eaten meat since then. And I don't miss it at all. Now, I think if I hadn't come to this conclusion via violent vomiting, I probably wouldn't feel that way. But I do now, and so I don't eat meat really at the moment. The only thing I eat is a tiny bit of seafood, but I've been vegetarian for the last, I don't know, uh, three, four, five months, which is kind of weird. It just snuck up on me with a giant toilet-hugging celebration in Texas. <clears throat> okay. Point number 11, politics. Before I start, this is about Trump supporters and what I have observed. I've, I've observed, and I've got a lot of this written in this particular point, so I, I might just read through some of this because I think it's there's 15 points in here that I think are interesting, and these are things that I've, I've noticed over time, and also I've been speaking to Trump supporters a lot lately. I have a lot of friends who are Trump supporters, so just because someone doesn't like the same uh, you know, that has different politics than me is not a reason for me to say, look, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. I just think that that's, that's not going to get us anywhere. And just because you, you, your politics are different from mine doesn't mean I don't want to know you or I don't want to learn why you think those politics are good. But before we start this about Trump supporters, I'm just going to say this. The Democrats are a total disaster, right? We had the worst candidate in the history of American politics for three and a half years and the Democrats couldn't get it together and even consolidate on a single, good, young, vibrant, atypical candidate. We are stuck with an old white guy who's a career politician who has a tendency of putting his foot in his mouth. It's not to say that he hasn't done some good things in the past. He is not the right vehicle to move the country forward, nor was Bernie, nor was um, Hillary um, we need to rethink our political system. So don't think that I'm in love with the, the Democratic Party. I vote for them now because it's a lesser of two evils. I can't stand anything to do with Trump, his family, his cronies, the lying, the corruption, the crime, the deception. It's uh, We knew it going in. He's done exactly what I thought he would do. 
He's a train wreck. I will vote for Genghis Khan if he's on the ticket opposed Donald Trump. So I think the Democrats are incredibly detached. I think their base is entitled. I think they're unorganized. And I think their constituents in a lot of ways are delusional who act like the world around them isn't real. They don't want to believe that Trump won. And they don't want to believe that that many people out there could support someone like Trump. They don't really want to know what America is like because it's ugly and scary. And a lot of the Dems, a lot of the lefties that I know live on the coasts. They think that they're pretty sophisticated and they think that the coastal cities run the country. And that is not the case. And if you need any reminder, look at 2016, right? The average American is a middle American and they do not like the coasts. They don't like the cities. They don't like elitists. They don't like houses in the Hamptons and they don't trust any of you. And they're nuts. And that's what I want to get to now. So uh, the, I'm going to call them the trumpets, right? So these are the Trump supporters. And I've sort of broken these down into, um, and again, for four years, I've been talking to Trump supporters about what they do and why and how they think this way. So I want to break them into categories. The first group is, I think, about five to 10% of Trump voters, super wealthy, super white, and not Republican, and not fans of Trump behind closed doors. They are, they made a deal with the devil because of what Trump did with the market and they're making money. And these people are despicable because they will say things to me. And I've heard this multiple times. Yeah, he's a liar and he's a racist and he's a sexist and he's terrible for the environment and he's terrible for us overseas. And they'll, they'll just line off this litany of stuff that he's bad ending with, but look at my bank account. Right, that's five to ten percent of the Trump supporters. They're probably the most despicable group of all. Now, the second part is really interesting. The second group, which I think is about thirty to forty percent of Trump voters, which are straight ticket Republican voters. And I know a lot of these. I also know a lot of straight ticket Democratic voters. I think if you're a straight ticket voter, you're a moron because you're not looking at policy. You're just looking at title. And you can have a Democrat with the world's best policies and a Democrat with the world's worst policies and vice versa with Republicans. So I have friends who vote straight ticket Democrat who've said to me, there's no such thing as a bad Democrat. There's no such thing. There's never been a bad Democrat. These are delusional people, right? They just are not. They refuse to look at the facts. They're no better than the, than the post-truth Trump supporter. So to me, anybody who votes straight ticket. Now, the interesting part about the straight ticket people is a lot of them don't know that Trump never identified with the Republican Party ever in his entire life. So the fact that Trump was the guy who had the Republican label around his neck was the only thing that they needed to see. It could have been anyone. They could have put, what, a Bill Cosby. They could have put Vladimir Putin. And as long as it had a Republican around his neck, they would vote for him. They often don't know anything about the policies or the history of that candidate. It's just about the label. And again, I, this is probably 30 to 40 percent. Okay, the rest of the Trump supporters are the ones that get all the publicity because they're, they're kind of a train wreck, right? And, so, and sometimes it's a self-inflicted wound, and other times it's because they were dealt a bad hand or a bad education or they're misinformed or they're, you know, there's a variety of other reasons for this. But the rest are what I would call middle to lower income I don't want to say uneducated, but their education level is minimal, right? High school diplomas often. And so there's not a real, um, there's not a lot of knowledge about these, these topics. History, number one. They, they often, Trump supporters, and again, I talked to two more last week, and I have lots of evidence as to their hist lack of knowledge about history. 
They have no, basically no knowledge of American history or world history. They actually don't know the history of the Republican Party, and they don't know the historical Republican policies. They have no idea. They don't understand the financial world and the financial markets. They don't understand domestic policy or foreign policy, especially. And in, in some cases, they're vehemently and radically sort of radicalized, violent, violent even, towards any foreign policy because they think that we're so much better than everyone else. They don't understand American societal structure, race, religion, and they certainly 100% do not know geography. They oftentimes can't find the United States on a map. Um, and also, they're, they're incredibly conspiracy-prone, although that I've seen creeping into both parties. In fact, I heard a conversation my wife had the other day with someone, a lefty, that was about the origins of the, of the virus. That was just mind-boggling. I mean, I, I literally—and my wife was trying to talk this person off the cliff and saying, like, you should just stick to the facts and the science and, like, forget everything you're talking about. Um, okay, moving on to the trumpets. Um, this is again five percent, five to ten percent are the ones looking at their bank account. Thirty to forty percent are straight Republican voters, and then we're talking trumpets and their lack of knowledge about a variety of different things: geog history, geography, Republican policy, etc. They're almost also entirely lacking in curiosity. They don't know and they don't want to know. That's my experience. And again, I had two long conversations last week with Trump supporters, and I this was just. It was more fuel in the fire for this post. Um, these are people who want to be told they do not want to learn, right? That's just, it's too, learning means you got to go out of your way, and they would much rather have someone come and say, you're going to do this and that. Um, also, they will watch as their own self-interest and own self-security get destroyed, and they will double down on their candidate, even while this is happening. I equate it to clinging to a lifeboat that's already underwater, and you seem to be totally fine with the fact that you're going to go down with the ship. The only other thing that I've seen like this are cults, and I've been around two cults in my life. I was never a member of either cult, but I, had, I was around people who were in cults, both as a child in elementary school and then later as an adult. And the only, they're the, those are the only two other groups that I've seen that are similar to fervent, fervor-ridden Trump supporters. Um, Trump people as well are terrified of the truth, right? They, that's why this whole idea of post-truth has come up. Next, their travel history is incredibly limited, but they speak of other place in, places and regions as if they have been there. And when they do travel, they only travel to, quote, safe countries uh, with groups or corporate groups, and they travel to primarily white countries where they can most often find exactly what they have at home. So again, I've had um, over the last three and a half years, I've had all I can say is I've done my research. Um, they're also fear-based travelers, warning others about dangers that don't actually exist, and that comes from bad media. That comes from propaganda, typically Fox News. They want everybody terrified, everybody on edge. I've seen this in my family members. You know, they watch Fox News, and you're just like, and my father was the same way. He just, you know, every every country that wasn't white was was terrible, and you're going to get killed if you go there, kind of thing. Um, they also have incredibly limited sources of information. They're angry. Um, and they only get information from the people who deliver what they already want to hear, right? We, we've heard this story, you know, preaching to the choir many times over. Um, I had a conversation with someone in Texas, and they had absolutely no knowledge of Texas history at all. They didn't know that Texas was a part of Mexico. They didn't know about Guadalupe Hidalgo. They didn't know how that war started. 
and as to how we went and basically just fabricated a reason to take this land because they didn't know and they didn't want to know because it brings into doubt what they've heard from the party. And it also brings up the fact that many of them are racist, right? And, they'll, and, it, and it always starts, and this just happened again, it always starts with this quote, I'm not racist, but, and then they drop some horrible racist thing on you, and you're like, yeah, uh, you're racist. Um, about 80% of those I've spoken to either don't know or barely know who Stephen Miller is. So he's Trump's chief policy advisor. He's a white nationalist. He's a freak. His family's denounced him. He is a full-on whack job. They don't know who—some of them had heard of Stephen Miller, but they didn't know about the email leak. They didn't know about his history. They don't know about his policies. They don't know where—they didn't know anything about him, right? They just know Trump. That's it. Um, let's see. What else? Oh, so they don't understand the link between Trump and white nationalism. And again, going back to history, they don't know that Hitler modeled his Nazi party on the American Nazi party. So Hitler looked at what the American Nazi party was doing with African Americans and said, we can learn from that, and that's what we should model, model on. And oh, by the way, the American Nazi party used to hold rallies at Madison Square Garden. You can go online and listen to the audio files of those rallies. And again, this is something that Trump—in fact, this is something that most Americans don't seem to know at all, that there was an American Nazi party, and two, that they held rallies at Madison Square Garden. I've had that conversation with a multitude of people from all political groups, and they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, so um, we've had this problem for quite a while, and Trump is obviously in bed with these guys and has really emboldened uh, people to do this. Um, there's a basic and total utter lack of basic information and knowledge from their base. And the only, and this is the last point, the only defense that Trumpers have when you bring up something that Trump has done or said, or one of his cabinet members, this is, I've heard this 500 times in the last three and a half years, and it comes out of right field. And it comes as the last, like the last card in the deck where it's like, this is the only thing I've got to defend my point of view is, quote, Obama was worse. Obama. They still blame Obama. They'll blame Obama for something Trump did yesterday. They'll say, well, Obama did that. You know, oh, uh, we delayed our response to the virus. Oh, that wasn't us. That was Obama. Obama did that. Obama got rid of the, uh, the pandemic team. They just make it up. That's the only thing they have is, is blame Obama. That's my take on American politics at the moment. And again, I hope I'm really wrong. Point number 12, I tried something called Instacart here in Santa Fe, which is uh, hooked up with a local grocer. And we got um, emergency messages on our phone saying, please, please, please limit your visits to the grocery store. So I was like, okay, I don't know what to do. Like, is it better for me to go to the grocery store or is it better for me to use something like Instacart, which is tied to the grocery store, where I put an order in online and there's a personal shopper that goes, they look at your list, they go into the store, they buy it, they call you if there's something that's not there or whatever. It's been going on for a long time. It's not like they just invented this for the virus. But I was, I kind of felt bad. I was like, is it, well, now somebody has to go into the store. It's not me. So maybe I feel bad for, I do feel bad for this other person. Am I putting them at risk? Or is it worse for me to go into the store by myself and then come back here and possibly infect a bunch of other people? So I try, I called a friend who's been using it for a long time and she was like, oh, it works great. 
and they seem to be com totally happy and people are, you know, game. So I tried it and it worked really well, but I still don't really know what the right protocol is. I gave a huge tip. I didn't place a big order. I probably ordered like eight or 10 things that were small. Um, lots of, you know, produce and stuff that was, I couldn't get, I didn't have any like, you know, backups of, and the person who came was probably 60. She was driving a brand new car. She was in a great mood. She was really happy. She was like, Oh, you know, I'm at the gate. Oh, give me the code and I'll drop it at your front door. And, uh, and then, you know, we, we had a little discussion from distance, um, and, and everything seemed right, but you tell me, is it better for me to use Instacart or is it better for me to go to the store by myself? Now, remember, I have the world's worst immune system. I have the 1982 Ford Pinto immune system. So if I get this thing, I'm probably long gone. Some of you might want that. Um, some of my friends probably would want that. Okay, let's see here. Um, I'm going to skip points. Well, I'm going to go over this through this quickly. Point 13, I get, I get a million questions about this, about ongoing projects. Are you working on something now? Do you have an ongoing project? You never have to ask me that again. Those of you who know me know that I always have a project going on, and most of the time I've got about eight projects going on. Let me just drop this one on you. Remember AG23, the zine collaboration with Beyond where our first issue is out and the website is done and but right before the virus locked down all of our shipping and the, the zines itself. But that was a year in the making, right? Now, that's not a project about me, but that's a really damn good project that, oh, by the way, we are scheming on all kinds of cool things in the future for this. Some stuff that's happening right now, but then we're looking one year, two year down the road. This might turn into something that's going to change some things. So I've got that going on. But I also have three other projects. I have an ongoing photo project in New Mexico. I've got an ongoing photo project in California that's also a written project. So I have a huge writing, about 90 pages of copy I have to write for that. And then I've, I've just started another project, which I'm not going to give you details of because I don't do that until the project is done. But it's a combination of, it's a lot of writing as well. Um, and it's photography and, and maps and scans and graphics. Um, and then I have two screenplay ideas, and I've never, I've never written a screenplay, uh, but I think both of these screenplays are really good, and I've run them by a couple of people who are in the, in, the, in the TV and movie business in California for many, many years, and I didn't even know they were in those businesses, and, and I, thought they were, I thought they were in the business that I knew them in, that they're in now. And then they were like, hey, what are you working on? I said, oh, I'm going to write this screenplay. Oh, really? What's the story? And I told them, and the guy's like, yeah, you know what I did for 25 years? No. Yeah, I was. I worked in Hollywood, and uh, that's a great story. You know what? You you got your hands on something there, but that's not a movie. That's a that's a um, it's a television series, and here's why. And he broke it down for me. So I have a million things. Also, I'm learning to draw, and I'm learning Spanish, and I'm you know I do my regular writing and blurb. By the way, I have a full time job. So yeah, I'm a little bit busy. No, let me just skip to the last point, the second to last point, which was something about knowledge and. Um, I don't want to get into this now because it's too much, but this idea that um, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I've never been the smartest guy in the room, and I never will be, right? I, I'm, I'm basically a dumbass. There's probably so many things that you know that I don't, but I have a, an insatiable need to learn, and I've had this since I was a kid, and it's one of the reasons why I keep a notebook. You know, I've kept a notebook since I was in elementary school. And it was be, and I would just write down stuff like conversations I heard, parents, kids, PTA, I don't care, who, cops, 
you know, the, the, I went to a really violent school, you know, watching teachers get bitten, uh, beaten up and I'd be like, oh, well, let me just write, let me just write down this dialogue. Maybe somebody's going to want to know. But I, I, that is not something I don't think I can ever shake that. So I'm constantly looking to increase my knowledge. So hopefully you are too. I'm going to talk a lot more about this because I have some specific examples of my daily life and my schedule, which I'll talk about next time. I have a daily plan that I try to follow, and it's all based on that. And it's based on the fact that I am a total dumbass. Um, very quickly, before I get to the, the story, um, I heard an expression last week from someone who I really, really, really like. He is a photographer that has an archive that would absolutely blow your hair back. Um, and he's one of the funniest people I've ever met in photography. Um, his stories are bar none as good or better than any stories I've ever heard from any professional photographer in my life. He used an expression called above the fold, and it was about reading the New York Times and reading a story that was above the fold. And for those of you youngins out there, that means a story in a printed physical paper newspaper that was above where the paper was folded. It was literally a story above the fold. If you could get a story above the fold, you were a total badass. Like that was a huge deal for any journalist, any photographer getting something above the fold because that was the only real estate, and it was absolutely magnificently powerful to get above the fold. We've all bl we've blown that out of the water. Um, that same New York Times online has something like 127 links on a daily basis above the fold. It's like diarrhea de la boca. It's like diarrhea of the mouth of links and content and useless, nameless, just junk that's just, you know, they're trying to fill the pipeline of content. But I love that expression above the fold. Okay, last story. I'm assisting for a photographer who's working for National Geographic, and we are in Alaska. And we are assigned to uh, hike this trail. It's five days, starting in coastal rainforest, up over, uh, up like alpine, subalpine. Five days, great trail, unbelievable. You know, grizzly bears, beautiful untouched landscape. Um, long, long, long story. But we come off of this trail. Now it's, it's July. And before we leave, we call this pre-internet pre really offering any sort of substance. I think this was 94, 95. So it wasn't like you could just pop online and like learn everything you could now. So we call the, tr the ranger. And the guy says, quote, oh, you could hike this in tennis shoes. So I'm like, oh, this is, uh, this is good. This is going to be easy. So I'm carrying food clothing and camping supplies for two people, which is huge. My pack looks like Alaska itself. And the photographer is carrying all of the camera gear. So 302A, zooms, primes, bodies, backups, batteries, strobes, everything, right? So he's got a hefty load as well. And we do this trail and the third day in, we're in a whiteout blizzard. Okay, whiteout. You can't see 10 feet and it's July. And I'm wearing Adidas. They're kind of like I don't even know what you would call them. They're soft hiking boots, right? They're not a tennis shoe, and they're not a hiking boot. They're sort of that mid-range kind of thing. But mine, of course, are completely worn out even before I begin the trail. The bottom is flat. It has no tread whatsoever, and there's like holes that are almost all the way through my, my sole. But I was like, the ranger said I could hike this in tennis shoes. I told you a minute ago I was a dumbass, okay? So now you know with certainty. So we start this trail, and I'm bent over. I'm bent over like a babushka. Like this pack is way too heavy. Third day, tons of snow. 
you know, we're hiking. I get lost um, on this huge talus field, like a thousand feet high. And long story, a guy hiking with us, he's an expedition guy from Wyoming, saved us, built a fire in this warming shelter. He was like, his name's Doug. Doug, wherever you are in the world, thank you. You saved us. And anyway, we come off of this trail and we're wasted. And we get to the end of the trail and we're in the Yukon now. And this ranger comes up and he goes, look, there's a blonde grizzly bear that's treed a bunch of people. And so what we do in the Yukon is we just say, okay, you can't use the trail anymore. So you, um, you idiots are on your own. You're going to have to find another way out of the wilderness, but you can't use the trail. So like, we're looking at each other, like we're not Lewis and Clark. Like we live in Orange County. Okay. Where's the Starbucks dude. So right at that time, across this huge lake comes this little boat with a guy and this, this kid. And uh, the kid says, hey, I'll give you a ride across to Carcross, Yukon. So we go, okay, we hop in this boat. Cool, super cool kid. He's married. He's a, a, a white kid who's married to a Klingit woman. And um, so this guy, about halfway across the lake, he goes, um, hey, you guys ever uh, done a sweat lodge? And I was like, I didn't even know what a sweat lodge was. Again, dumbass. And I'm like, nope. He goes, well, we're doing one later today. Um, it's not for tourists. It's a real one, but I might be able to get you guys permission. So we look at each other, and I'm like, hey, that sounds like fun, okay? <laughs> Foreshadowing. So we get permission, and we, a couple hours later, we're now, we've, we're five days out of the wilderness, right? We just come off the end of the trail. We're wasted, and we drive up to this house, this Klingit house, and this guy comes out. He's one of the tribal leaders, tribal elder guys. And he looks at us and he goes, if you think this is a joke, you're going to burn. So walk away and make a decision if this is something you think you can do. Because if it's not, walk away. Because this is no joke. So now I'm like, uh-oh. So we look at each other and we walk off and we have a little, a little meeting between the photographer and I. And I'm like, you know, we, I, I don't remember exactly what transpired, but neither one of us was like going to say, let's not do this. So we go, hey, we're in, we're game. Now, what transpired after this, and I'm only going to tell the first part this week, which is the sweat lodge. There's a second part of this that revolves a tiny airplane with no doors um, doing something that we shouldn't have been doing. But the first part is about the sweat lodge. So we go into the backyard of this place, and we are now there with a group of these, and if I'm pronouncing this wrong, I apologize, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Klingit, the Klingit tribe. And there's probably four of those guys, and then there's a Caucasian guy who's friends with them, who turned out to be a guy who had had a real drug problem, and his life was headed in the wrong direction, and the Klingits took him in, and they got him in the sweat, and they cleaned him up, and he had like really turned his life around. It's a great story, cool guy. So they said, look, this isn't for tourists. This is for us, and we're letting you come in here. And to do this, you're going to have to do the entire ritual with us and, and in some cases by yourself. So, you know, we, we built this. Go down to the river. First of all, take off all your clothes except your underwear. And then go down to the river, and you're going to do this sort of procedure. You're going to pay respects in different directions and to different elements. And we go through, down to the river, and we go through this thing. And now they've buried these stones underground all day. And they're, you know, on coals. So the stones that go in the center of the sweat lodge are in just insanely hot. They're like molten red when they come out of the ground. Now, apparently, in a normal sweat lodge, 
there's only X amount of stones, right? I don't know anything about sweat lodges. I don't know how, what the stone count's supposed to be. All I know is that the, the sweat lodge is very small, and it's very low, and it's very tight. And there's pine bows on the floor. So we're sitting with our backs against the wall, and the sweat lodge is very, it's, it's very low ceiling. It's tiny. So you're sitting there with your legs crossed, but your body is bent forward because the walls of it come right up behind you. Before the door is even closed, okay, and it's covered in black plastic, there's no light that comes in and out, and there's no air that comes in and out. Once that door closes, it does not open. Now, we found out at the end of our fourth round, which I'm getting to, you, you do four rounds inside. Um, first of all, there were way more stones, apparently, than what would normally be in there. Now, when this whole thing was over, they kind of joked to us, Hey, we did this on purpose. We, we were trying to kind of get you guys to freak out, right? And you didn't freak out. But they apparently had this little conversation amongst themselves that they were going to make it hotter than normal to try to get one of us to make a break for the door. And to make a break for the door means you would have to climb over someone in the dark to try to even find the door. Like, not optimal, okay? Not optimal. And apparently they had stationed some guy by the door to block us if that was the case. Now... How much of that is true, I don't know, but that's what they told us afterwards. So here's the, here's the fun part. This is where it gets interesting. So by the time you're sitting there in your underwear and pine bows in the middle of a sweat lodge with the door about to shut, you start to, you start to question your decision-making paradigm. Like, is this a place that I really want to be? Is this a place? Did, have I made a tragic decision here? So the door shuts, and it is pitch black. You cannot see a centimeter in front of your face. I know because I held my hand up in front of my face just to see. So in the, in the middle is this enormous pile of these molten stones. The heat coming off the stones before they put any water on it was the hottest thing I've ever felt in my life. It was like you had your head in the oven at 475 for 35 minutes. It was just unconscionably hot, this, this heat coming off of these stones. And now you realize, I'm in big trouble, right? I don't even know what a sweat lodge is but I'm about to find out in the worst possible way. So here's where it gets cool. So somewhere in there's the photographer and he's tough, man. He's, he's riding it out too. And there's the other Caucasian guy. And then there's all the local, the Indian guys, the local guys, the native, native American guys. And he has a Buffalo horn that's hollow and he's dipping it in a bucket of water and they're chanting and he's pouring it on the stones. And it is still to this day, one of the coolest experiences I've ever had in my life being inside there, hearing that chanting, and hearing but not being able to see the buffalo horn dipping into a bucket of water, and then hearing the water hit the stones, and then the heat would go straight up. It would hit the roof of the sweat lodge and roll back, and it basically would come down on your shoulder blades because my head was tipped forward into my lap because I was basically knew I was in big trouble, right? And so they're chanting, and the goosebumps, you just realize, okay, this is unlike anything I've ever done in my entire life. Photography doesn't matter. My family doesn't matter. Um, nothing matters except this moment. And the horn keeps dipping, and the horn keeps dipping, and it keeps dipping. And every time with the horn comes pain. Pain. I literally felt that the water on my shoulder blades was boiling. That's what it felt like because the pain was so great. And here's the best part in the moral of this story. As I very quickly made a decision, I said, okay, I'm in way over my head. 
Um, I'm not exactly a spiritual guy. Maybe I am a spiritual guy. I'm not a religious guy, right? I have no time, no tolerance for organized religion, but maybe I'm a spiritual guy. And I said to myself, I have to leave here now mentally. Mentally, I'm a dove. I'm a raven. I'm a, I'm a hawk. I'm a sparrow. I'm a house finch. I have to leave. And I did. I literally flicked a switch and I was no longer physically in that sweat lodge because I could not handle it physically. And I went to a part, a place in my brain that I had never, ever been to. And it happened instantaneously once I realized I have no choice. I have to do this or like he said, I'm going to freaking burn in this place. So this was just the first round. So I've already realized I'm, I'm way in over my head. I'm in trouble and I have to do this. Boom. I disappear mentally. I'm somewhere else. Where? I don't know. I don't remember. So the door flies open right? And everybody immediately lays flat on the ground, but I was too slow and didn't know that's what you were supposed to do because it's a little bit cooler if you're laying flat on the ground. And so now I'm stuck sitting up. And he says to me, um, I see the guy who's running the sweat and then the, the real old timer, Native American, probably tribal elder guy, or maybe he was just an older friend of the guy who's running the sweat. They're talking amongst each other, right? And they're pointing at me. And everyone's just kind of like laying on the floor, zoned out, and I'm sitting upright, and I think I made eye contact with the photographer and we both like gave that look like, oh my God, let's just, you know, try to survive this. And I see those two talking and they're pointing at me. And then the old guy says something. And then the guy running the sweat says, and at the time I lived in Arizona, right? And I was living in like 115 degrees in Arizona. So like regular temperatures didn't bother me. And he goes, look at the man from Arizona. His skin does not burn. You know, and he basically, everyone had blotches all over them, and my skin, for whatever reason, didn't. I've never had a skin blotch in my life, so it's, it's nothing I did. It's just the way that my body is built. So long story short, I get booted out after the first round. I have to go down to the river and do something with stones, or I have to do a pose in a certain direction. I don't remember. It's been too, too long ago, but it was something very, that they felt was very important that I had to do, so I did. So I got a little minimal break between rounds. I got out of the sweat lodge and had to go down to the river. I didn't get in the river, but I was near it, and then came back and went through three more rounds of sweat lodge. And it was like, by the time we came out of there and got in the car and we're driving out of that driveway, first of all, I was simultaneously thrilled because I knew this was something I may not ever get another chance to do. Two, I had gone someplace mentally that I didn't know I had the capability to go, which stuck with me and has always stuck with me for the rest of my life. That's something that I can now access and turn on when I need to. And I do it oftentimes for, I don't want to say entertainment reasons because that's not right. It's for educational purposes and reasons where I can go there mentally without needing the pain to instigate it. Um, and it's a really, I feel it's like a power spot that I can go to. Um, uh, but that was uh, just the first half of the story. And that's, a, that's an hour and 14 minutes. This is maybe the longest one of all time. But I will come back the next, uh, next week, remind me, someone, anyone, and I will talk about the, uh, the second part of this, which is the little airplane experience we had right after this. So I really appreciate you tuning in. There's so much to talk about these days, and uh, there's so many good creative things happening in the world, even though we are in the middle of a pandemic. So hopefully you and your family are doing the, as good as you can possibly do. I hope your families are good. I hope people stay safe, stay smart, 
And um, I think if we if we sh- sacrifice in the short term as a collective, as a species, we can hopefully come out of this without long-term uh, pain, more than what we're already seeing right now. And if you've lost somebody or have somebody that's sick, um, I'm going to go to that, that place in my brain right now, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send out uh, whatever I can send from the hills in New Mexico. Thanks again.